Good morning. It's my joy to get introduced to a family that wants to make this their church home, Seth and Emily Howell. Y'all mind standing where you are, giving us a wave? We got their picture on the screen as well. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about this family. Seth is from Murfreesboro, attended MTSU. He's a home builder. Uh, Emily, many of you know, is from Columbia. West Seventh's her uh, home church. Her mom and dad are Randy and Jeannie Davidson. She attended Lipscomb, and she taught school for six years. They met through mutual friends. Um, they've got a few children. Uh, you can see on the picture Lucy, Kaysen, Banks, and Beckett. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful family. Uh, but after eight and a half years, they have moved to Columbia, and uh, Seth was telling me they don't want to just automatically come to West 7th because this is where she grew up, but they uh, tried several different churches but feel like West 7th is the best fit for them. Uh, so introduce yourself to the Howells. Get to know them. Uh, great people, and we're grateful to call them part of us. Over the summer, we've looked at the book of Colossians. Um, plus, we took a break from our small group Bible studies, but it's time to kick those off again, and we're going to share about that more as we close today. So when deciding what to study next, I always try to consider what's going to work well in our Sunday morning, our worship time, and with such a diverse group, but also to provide good Bible discussion for our small group Bible studies. And when possible, I like to kind of alternate between the Old and New Testament. I heard someone say a good uh, balanced Christian Bible study has one foot in the old and one foot in the new. And I, I truly have come to believe that uh, more and more because we can learn so much from both. Think with me just for a moment. Take a look around these days and it's easy to see someone who has it pretty easy and yet they complain anyway. You ever witnessed that? Or maybe you know someone who's talented, smart, attractive, but they didn't really know it or live their life like that. Or ever been around someone who has so much going for them, but the way they carry themselves, maybe their sour attitude or a critical spirit, you, you would think they were the victims of, of abuse or neglect or some kind of harsh circumstance. And from a worldly uh, perspective, we would suppose that would be normal. We almost expect that of the world. But what about God's people? What about God's people? Spiritually speaking, there are some Christians who have so much going for them. They're from a, a good, solid Christian home. They've got good Christian friends. They do not have that many true challenges in life, and yet... In them, we don't see joy. In them, we don't see confidence or assurance or peace. You might even say they can often be as miserable as those who don't know the Lord. Why? How? How can that be? How can someone who has tasted the goodness of the Lord not be changed? When I thought about that Bible verse, taste and see that the Lord is good, I was remembering Barrett shared a message on that just several months ago. Jesus had a joy about him. Jesus just attracted people. The way he taught, the way he lived, the way he carried himself, there was a charisma about him. So why is it then that we see some Christians even today fail to grow more like that, more like Jesus? Why do Christians today seem to be content having the same complaining spirit and negative tone and woe is me outlook as those who don't know the Lord? 
Am I making that up? Do any of you see that? Maybe even in yourself sometimes. You know, when something tragic hits, I mean something like the death of a spouse or a child, maybe you lose your, your home in a flood or a tornado or a fire, or maybe you get a, a serious cancer diagnosis or some other kind of very extreme difficulty, there are some Christians who respond just like the world. Why? Why is this happening to me? Complaining. It's, it's terrible. And yet there are some Christians who endure equally difficult circumstances, tragedies, even worse. And in spite of that, have an amazing confidence in the Lord. They exude a joy that refuses to be uh, defined by their circumstances. And sometimes even in those dire circumstances, we'll be the first to say, God is good. They're convinced they're in the middle of God's hand. What's the secret? What's the difference? How do some Christians have it and others seem to not, totally miss it? Why do some believers struggle with taking what God wants us to have? Uh, there is a statement Jesus made in John 10.10 10 that I think is just so fantastic. He explains, trying to uh, encourage us to understand who he is and why he came. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That word life that he's talking about there can be translated both physical life and eternal life. But I want us to understand that we can have eternal life beginning right now. It doesn't just have to wait until we die when we go to heaven. Do we believe what Jesus said here in John 10.10? 10? I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Again, go back to the garden. God has always wanted what's best for his people. Isn't that true? I mean, when he created the Garden of Eden, everything was good. Remember that? As, as the creation uh, story opened, everything was good. And when he created mankind, very good. He wanted the best for his people. And Jesus said in his kingdom, his followers would have life and have it abundantly. Well, today I want to begin a new study, and I'm really encouraged about this. The book of Joshua is all about God's people taking what God had given them. Now, the story of Joshua is not new. You know the story. I know the story. Our children know the story. It's a wonderful story. Several of us went through this, this uh, study verse by verse back in the spring, and I've preached from Joshua before. You've studied it before, but we can always learn more from the Word looking into this. I want to make sure we learn the lessons from Joshua. The Bible tells us, reveals in this book, just because God promises us something, that doesn't mean we necessarily have it or claim it or take possession of it or live like it's true. I think we'll understand more as we get into this this morning. Let's just look at Joshua chapter 1. Look how the book opens. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people. And remember, they just come out of their wilderness wanderings. They've just been freed from slavery. Scholars estimate this is a minimum of two and a half million people. 
some say as much as five, six million people. You and all this people into the land I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given you just as I promised to Moses. So really the story of the book of Joshua is really about God's people claiming what God had given them. They're opening the present. They're taking what he wants them to have. So after 40 years of wandering, they finally get their own home. And it'd be so easy just to read the book of Joshua and assume the people had never been there before. I mean, they grew up in Egypt. That's where they'd been. In fact, most of their, their parents even died in the wilderness. And so these folks were coming in for the first time. Well, that generation. But their people had been there before. So really to understand the context of Joshua, we've got to go back a little bit and understand, wait a minute, this is not the first time God's people had been in this land. Abram had been there before. Abraham. God promised him, to your offspring, I will give this land. So these people in Joshua chapter 1 are really coming into a land that had been promised to their people hundreds of years before. Very quickly, look at the screen. Genesis chapter 12, kind of going way back. Verses 1 through 7. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. First time that word Canaan, the land, is mentioned in Scripture. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through from the land to the place at Shechem to the oath of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So there he built an altar to the Lord and appeared to him. So fast forward hundreds of years. God made good on another promise of Abraham. Remember he said, Through your nation, through your people, through your seed, all the world will be blessed. Through Abraham, one day the whole world will be blessed by someone named Jesus born in this land. God's working his plan from beginning to end. So we need to understand when God was giving the land to the people in Joshua chapter 1, it was not just for their sake. It wasn't just that he was bringing them out of the Egyptian slavery, out of the time of wilderness. This for the sake of every human who ever lived or would live. God was keeping his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. Everyone would be blessed by what would happen. I put this on the screen on your outline. When God relocated his his people, he was preparing for the coming of his son. You've heard the statement, Jesus is in every book of the Bible. You see it truly through the book of Joshua. In fact, it's significant that Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. Yeshua. You may have heard Jesus referred to in that way. In fact, even the name of the book is really an amazing way of of telling us, reminding us, that any movement of God through his people throughout time, even back in the Old Testament, even today, 
is always about Jesus. If you study this before, you know Joshua means the Lord saves. This is the purpose of this relocation. God was not just saving the Israelites from slavery. He was keeping the promise to Abraham to send his son to save all the world. So Joshua is just one chapter in this amazing story of God. This is also on the screen. There is more to our relationship with God than being just delivered from bondage. See, what was happening to them, for them, there's a God principle going on that's true for us. This is significant truth that we need to grasp. As incredible as it was for God to deliver his people after the 400 years in bondage, the 40 years of wandering, that's no small feat. One of the greatest stories in the Old Testament, we love the story of redemption, of deliverance, crossing of the Red Sea. But that wasn't all that God was up to here. God wasn't just delivering them from something. He was delivering them to something. It was all part of his divine plan. But too many believers are exactly where these people are when the book of Joshua begins. They've been delivered from their past, but they're living their lives like they're wandering in the wilderness. Nothing to really want to have. It's not really attractive at all. Way too many have been wandering in the wilderness. They've heard the gospel. They've obeyed the gospel. They've confessed Christ. They've been baptized. They're saved. You might even say they've had a Red Sea experience. But that's it. They remain in the wilderness. One author put it this way. They've got their past in the rearview mirror, but they've yet to put their spiritual car in gear. They've not really moved. Remember what happened before Joshua chapter 1? They were brought up to the border of the promised land. It was time to go in, and they sent the spies. If you don't remember that story, ask your children. They know this story. And the ten come back, and they tell a very factual report about there are giants in the land. It was overwhelming. That was true. They weren't exaggerating. They were big. It was an impossible task in their own merit. Only two, and you remember their names because they're the only two mentioned, Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we are like grasshoppers, but with God's help, we can take it. There is something about people, then and now. You can hear one positive remark, I back that up. You can hear 10 positive remarks and one negative, and what you remember is the negative. Isn't it true? There's something about us, we just focus on the negative. You know who knows this? The news agencies of the world. They know. There's something about us we can't help but look, we can't help but listen, we can't help but pay attention. And so they just capitalize on that and they just feed it to us. It is everywhere. You know what we do? We just take it all in. And the result of that, we get filled with depression and fear and anxiety. And then we keep watching. The people in Joshua's day had the ten telling them there's no way. 
and the two that said, but God, there is a way. And faith gave way to fear. When you read the book of Joshua, you can just kind of see yourself right there. Get this, God wanted to give them so much. And God was ready to give it to them. He had prepared a way. He was going to be with them. He promised he would never leave them. But they wouldn't take it. They wouldn't take the step. Friends, I see the same thing today. There are some who have yet to claim what God has promised. They're stuck in the middle. Too many have never entered the promised land. But here's the point. I'm not talking about heaven. Did you know promised land is not found in Scripture? That phrase, promised land, is not in Scripture. That is something that Christians have created. Some of our poets, some of our songwriters. Now, the closest thing in Scripture is land of promise in the book of Hebrews. But we just call it the promised land. And there's something that happened somewhere along the way. In our imagery, we have paralleled promised land with heaven. We sing songs to this effect. To Canaan's land, I'm on my way. Remember that oldie but goodie? Where the soul of man never dies. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. Familiar lyrics. I'm not sure they're as accurate as we think they are. My study of scripture has given me some problem with paralleling the promised land just to heaven. Think about it. The promised land in Joshua's day, how is it described? The land flowing with milk and honey. It's good, prosperous, it's good land. But we also know the story of Joshua. It was a land filled with warfare and strife. That's not heaven. That's not what we're standing on the banks longing for. So the parallel kind of gets a little fuzzy there because that's not really what the Bible teaches. So how does that square with what we already mentioned in John 10.10 where Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's what Jesus promised. That's why he came. Think about what Jesus would say again and again and again as he was trying to tell people who he was and why he came. He would say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember that phrase? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, technically, if you're a Christian, you are saved. You're living eternal life right now. And then when you get to heaven, it's a much fuller expression of that. You were, instead of the Holy Spirit living in you, you are in the presence of God. That's why I say it may be more biblical, more theologically sound to say the promised land really parallels the life we have now in Jesus. We're in his grace. We're in his goodness. It is the best life. It is the life with milk and honey. It is the abundant life. Jesus wasn't the only one to talk like this, to teach like this. Other scripture, Romans 14, 17, look at what Paul wrote. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is not talking about heaven one day. Like one day you're going to get this. He's saying this is kingdom life now. 
Galatians 1, 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Now we think of deliver from hell, and that's included. But here he says, deliver from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. I really want you to see how Peter described this life in Jesus. Look at 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life in heaven. Nope, that's not what it says. That pertain to life and godliness to the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Get that. He has granted us his promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Life and godliness. These very great and precious promises. Why? So that you can partake, or some versions say participate, in the divine nature. Again, he's not talking about escaping hell. He's not talking about salvation here. Escape the corruption of the world. Corruption means coming apart. What he's saying here is you and the kingdom of God can live a life that's not coming apart. It's the best life. It's the abundant life. These passages, among others, reveal what's possible for a child of God now. To live this abundant life now. But there are some who don't quite taste that. They don't get that. They come to worship every Sunday, they sing the songs, they pray, they give generously, they share communion. But deep down, your belief, your thinking is that you hope you get to pray again and get forgiveness and you don't die in between those prayers. That's not the gospel. That's not what scripture teaches. I was reading through this, different commentaries. Someone wrote, I'm concerned that some of us have bought into a desert theology. A desert way of thinking. And so we've got to be careful about how we think. But sometimes we hear something in our formative years spiritually, even a song lyric, and our our theology is based on that. It might be a scripture, it might not. We need to grasp the truth of Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from the word. You wonder why we stress small group Bible studies, staying for Bible classes, you personally reading your Bible? Faith comes through the Word. That's how you know what God wants you to know. So be careful how you think. Be careful how you sing. There's another older song that kind of gives me trouble. Tempted and tried, we're off made to wonder. And one reason I don't like that, it sounds like a whiny, whiny, whiny child or adult. And we sing it that way, don't we? Tempted and tried. I'm not going to sing it for you because you've got it in your head. Off made to wonder. Now, there's some truth to that song. Jesus said, count the cost. The Bible's very clear about suffering for the name of Jesus. But let's be careful not to believe that the Christian life is some second-rate standard of living that we're a step down the world gets to have all the fun and we're over here just miserable wandering in the wilderness waiting till one day jesus takes us home that may be your theology but again you don't get that in scripture 
The Sunday morning Bible class I'm teaching, we're going through the Psalms, trying to understand the heart of God. For the last two weeks, we, we uh, studied Psalm 73, and Asaph is talking about that very thing, about just knowing all these people. I'm looking at the world, and they're, do, they're just doing so great. They're so evil, but, but no harm comes to them. And we were talking about that, and somebody in our class described that as stinking thinking. And it's true. We can all fall into that way of thinking, but it's out there, and if we're not careful, it gets in here. It gets in here. My goal is not to be critical of songs. That's, that's not what I'm trying to do. I want to challenge us to think. Think, even when you're singing a song. Think when you hear somebody talking, even in a Bible class, even in a sermon. Does that square with Scripture? Think about what we say. Think about how we pray. Think about what we believe. Think about how we talk about God. Think about how you hear other believers talk. Sometimes it may be full of faith straight from Scripture, and sometimes it may not align with Scripture at all. It's the way they talk, their message, their life. Does it line up with Joshua and Caleb's report? It's tough, it's going to be hard, but God's got this, and he's going to see us through. We love that kind of thinking, but sometimes we sound more like the other ten. There's no way, and we're miserable. But most of all, ask the question, how does that square with Scripture? Don't get stuck in desert theology, even if everybody else is thinking that way. Your family, your friends... Don't fall for that. As Christians, as God's people, we've been saved from our past experience of bondage to sin. That's what salvation is. We've been washed in the blood. We've been baptized. We confess Jesus is the Son of God. We repent of our sins. We're buried with Him in baptism. He makes us a new creation. But we've yet to taste and see that the Lord is good. And think about how that desert thinking, that desert theology, that stinking thinking, how that impacts the way you live your life and especially your influence on others. Why does anybody want what you've got and what you've got is not very good? Or at least to them, it's not very appealing. That's not the way Jesus lived. That's not who he is. That was not his message. He came to give us life. One commentary says, we look like Deacon Dry Dust and Sister Sourpuss. Remember the milk mustache ads years ago? All they would just show was the people, the different men, women, boys, girls with a little milk mustache. Kind of made you want milk. I think that can be our motivation, just to taste and see the Lord is good and then the way we live our lives, the way we present ourselves, people can't help but see that we've got something they don't have and it's good. It's so good. That's why you may be the most effective messenger of anybody in this room, much more than me. Because for me, it's my job. For all the ministers on staff, we get paid to do this and because of that, there's a little bit of a dismissal. Well, you're supposed to talk about it. What's so compelling is when you see a young person 
or a woman of God or, or a man who may not be up front, but their life is so transformed and they've got this abundant life. They're transformed. They've got this deep joy. It's hard to deny. And you see that. I, I want that. I want that. I think this church will continue to grow more and more as people see us with that milk mustache that we've tasted the Lord. And it could be your friends at school. It could be somebody that works beside you at work every day. It could be your neighbor. It could be your family. There's this one. Scripture calls him Yeshua. Jesus. In the Old Testament Greek, Hebrew, Joshua. We're being delivered not just from something, but to something. Very quickly, some lessons to learn from the text. Any territory God desires to give must be taken. What do you think about that? Any territory God desires to give must be taken. Notice the wording God uses speaking to Joshua. Moses, this incredible leader, has died. Joshua is stepping into these, these shoes that, that no one can fill. So God says very bluntly, Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua knows that. Everybody knows that. But God is acknowledging the fact. Moses' day is over. It's a new day. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given you, just as I promised to Moses. God will give them the land, but only where they set their feet. God wants to give them, but they've got to take it. So God has prepared this land. It's ready for them, but they've got to access it. They've got to claim it. Folks, again, that's another God principle. God wants to save everybody, everybody for whosoever. But we have to accept it. We have to claim the salvation. And the things we have to do to, to get that salvation... Salvation is not yours until you take a step. You have to claim the blessings. You can go to church all your life, years and years, and never experience the abundant life that Jesus has promised. Look at verses 3 through 5. kind of continues. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you just as I promised to Moses. And look at the, the, uh, the parameters here. From the wilderness... And this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Now, I could put a map on the screen and, and, and plot that all out. I found several, actually, where, where scholars have done that. And here's what you need to know, because as we were going through the book of Joshua and realizing how much God promised them, gave them the parameters, do you know how much they actually claimed? Oh, just a fraction. I mean, it wasn't just this open-ended. He told them how wide, and still they stayed so far. They only set their feet and just a fraction of what God had in store for them. It wasn't until later in the reigns of David and Solomon they expanded to the furthest, the furthest of the kingdom ever. And then it shrunk back down again. But here's the, the, the principle, the truth we need to grasp. And that's the title of the lesson. Stepping into 
the premises. See, there's something about us, maybe it's just because we've got a childlike, or maybe it's just a childish thinking, immature thinking, uh, that we just want the promises of God. What are the promises of God? But when you look in Scripture for the promises of God, what you'll see just before is a premise. Let me give you an example. They're throughout Scripture, but Philippians chapter 4, this is very, you, you know this one. Chapter 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You ever had that promise? No? Maybe because you didn't exercise or step into the premise. Look in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's what you do first. That's the premise of the promise. You do this. Don't be anxious about anything and everything you pray. You go to God, supplication, thanksgiving. You tell God what's on your heart. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts. God will give you every place you set your foot. He wants to bless you. He wants to give you the abundant life. It's not that God fails you is that sometimes we're just content to stay in the wilderness. Or I grew up in a family or a church that just kind of stayed in the wilderness, and that's all we know, that's all we've ever seen. You've heard this explained before, but very quickly. It's sort of like if you've got a relative, maybe it could be like your spouse or your parents or an uncle or, or, or some family member that dies and leaves you an inheritance. Now, the moment they die, it's not theirs because they're dead, but it's actually not yours yet. I mean, it is, but it's not in your bank account to spend yet, right? Because, well, the estate has to be settled, and, and all the documentation has to be taken care of, and it'll take a while before it's actually in your account or in your hands. Now, in doing all of that paperwork, you wouldn't say, well, I earned it or I deserve it. No, it was a gift that someone wanted to give you. But you had to step out. You had to do some things to receive that gift. There were premises to the promises. God desires to give you every place you take your foot. And then two, the taking will involve some spiritual warfare. Again, this is where the parallel of promised land to heaven just doesn't quite mesh to me. Because what we know in the book of Joshua, it was all about the battles. And in fact, you might even say the book of Joshua was not just about God's people getting the land. The book of Joshua was also about God's people executing justice on the evil people who were living there. The book of Joshua explains that. Battles, struggles, warfare. It happens for us. The greatest struggle of all time is the battle for man's soul. It started in the garden, and it continues today. And we know what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare. There are battles to be fought. The Bible talks about the reality of suffering. The Bible teaches we all must face death. But keep in mind, when you start stepping into the promises of God, hell will take note. Because you're trying to claim what God wants to give you. Satan would rather you be miserable. Satan would rather you be complaining like the rest of the world. But when you start stepping into the promises, there's going to be some resistance. There's going to be some pushback. Some of that may be some, from some forces outside you 
Maybe even other believers. Why are you talking like that? You're going to say, well, that's what the Bible teaches, and you have a good Bible study there. It may be your own self. It may be other people. This is what the book of Joshua is about. We're going to dive into this more in the weeks to come. I put this on the screen at the bottom of your outline. What has God promised you that you have yet to claim? There's so many verses in the New Testament that talk about the riches in Christ. You know what I'm talking about? There are so many. What has God promised you that you have yet to claim? Or have you settled for desert living? So instead of standing on Jordan's stormy banks and casting a wishful eye, maybe we should be challenged to take a step into the premises and claim what God has promised. It begins with taking a step toward your own salvation. Jesus died on the cross, but he's not going to save you against your will. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Will you confess that to others? Are you willing to repent, change your life? Let him make you a new creation as you're buried in baptism to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, to have the same promise to Joshua that God made to Joshua, Jesus makes to his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're not a child of God, we invite you to make that decision today. Or if we can pray for you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage? The Lord lifts his countenance upon